Skycast Episode 1, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing the Season 4 premiere, Echoes. Before we get started, we should probably tell you a little bit about the podcast and why we started. Um, we've been watching The 100 for about three years, ever since the fateful day that I stayed home from work sick and watched all 13 episodes in one day. And I was furious because as cheesy as the show looked, I was still 100% wanting to watch it. Yeah, I mean, even from like that very first episode, I was sort of like, I don't know what this is, but I'll give it a shot. And then became obsessed with it. And, and then I and then I made you watch it that weekend. That's the entire fandom. Everyone watching the first episode and being like, mm, and then watching episode three and being 100% on board. Yeah, it took three episodes and then the show hit off running. Um, we should give you a little bit of background about ourselves. Uh, we both work in publishing in New York City. I am a publicist. And I am a book editor who frequently tells agents that The 100 is basically my TV embodiment of the submissions that I want to read. And I spend most of my time trying to convince media that they should write a story about why The 100 is such a great show and why its strong female characters are the wave of the future, <laughs> even though I talk about books and not TV they still work their way into the conversation. <laughs> I think media in general, it's kind of really easy to complete. You would think that. <laughs> you would. Um, just so you know, we've decided to start the podcast at season four so we can discuss it in real time as the show airs, but we do plan to go back and discuss earlier seasons during hiatus. Um, so without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Um, I, I did want to say it's been quite a painful hiatus for us. I think, I mean, we've watched for three years, but this hiatus in particular felt incredibly long. I think it felt incredibly long for two reasons. One, um, 10 months is incredibly long. That's <laughs> 90% of the year. And two, uh, last season was so heavy. I think we knew that this, where we were hoping that season four would be a, a, a tonal shift towards positivity and optimism and hopefulness, even though it could never be more apocalyptic than it ever has been before. Um, and I think just waiting to sort of like leaven that burden that was season three made the wait even harder. Absolutely. And I, I think I think it's pretty well understood that they made a lot of mistakes last season. Um, I mean, I still loved the season, but I'm really looking forward to and hoping that they're able to correct those mistakes and and kind of move forward in a fresh way with this new season. Yeah, I think everything we've seen from the promos, from the marketing materials, it, it feels like they've taken all of that feedback, whether they will admit it or not, um, and really gone in a different direction to reflect that. Um, so I'm going to start with the A plot for the episode because there is a lot of plot and we're going to try to break it up into sections. Um, but this episode as a whole feels very much like a transition between last season and this new season, kind of ending out the problems from the end of last season and then starting up this uh, upcoming apocalypse that we have in season four. Yeah, I think what The 100 does so well is these transition episodes. Um, they're very good at drama. They're very good at wrapping up but they know how to blend, um, and this is no exception. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so we open up the season, kind of zooming in on the Polis Tower. We see all of these people, including Octavia, climbing down like spider monkeys. Um, so first and foremost, as Britt knows, if I were in this situation, I would never get down from this tower. She's terrified of heights. I, I like I can't even imagine like did Jaha climb down the tower? Did Kane and Abby really climb down? Like There's how did an they get elevator. down? Elevator. It's broken. No, they, they fixed it. Well, but it took them a long time. They didn't fix it for quite a while. That's why they were all climbing down the tower. 
I don't know. Octavia just couldn't wait. She had to, you know, zip right out. Um, and she spots Indra and goes over. Indra's kind of coming off of the cross where we saw her at the end of last season. Or I guess, did we even see her there? Did we know? Yeah, that was in like the last season. No, the last episode. So we saw her on the cross then. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's coming down from the cross and Octavia tells her that she waited until the battle and then killed Pike. Yeah, that's a, a very um, subtle way of, of saying I waited until the opportune moment. And, and murdered And him. murdered him. <laughs> um, so I, I guess we want to first talk about Octavia and Indra and how much we love this relationship. And it's a really great starter for this season, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Octavia-Indra relationship was a little bit surprising when it was first introduced, um, but has evolved into something that's absolutely beautiful and, and continuously, like, surprising to me. I am so pleased with their relationship. Octavia, you know living under the baseboards and the floorboards for 16 years of her life, I feel like she was a little bit less human than everyone else in the hundred and like really needed some sort of like adult role model to model her behavior after. And it was such an, not surprising, but interesting choice that she sort of like latched onto Indra as strongly as she did. Um, And especially now that Lincoln is gone, you know, it's like the only thing left and she's just holding on to Indra for dear life. I mean, aside from Bellamy, but they're in a really weird place right now. Um, And I think Indra in many ways is the mother figure that Octavia needs. Um, She really only knew two people growing up, her mother and her brother, and then she lost her mother. So I think she's trying to figure out who she is and she's using Indra as... As a framework. As a framework. And also, I think it's interesting to note that, I, I mean, she does love Bellamy. He's her brother and he always will be. But, like, he is in some ways complicit to her captivity when she was on the Ark. I mean, like, he, it was him and his mom and their mom deciding day after day that she needed to stay hidden. Obviously to save her life, but, like, being those only two figures in her life and the only ones that, I mean, in a way, they were her captives as well. So I think that's a really complicated relationship. And I think Indra came along with none of those strings attached um, and none of that baggage. And in many ways, Bellamy is almost apparent to her. Um, yeah. I think that's why their relationship, sometimes it seems so uneven because Bellamy just gives and gives and Octavia is continually pushing against that. And it's less of a sibling relationship and almost more of a parental, uh, you know, daughter relationship that we've Oh, yeah. Like you can see Octavia pushing back like any teenage girl trying to, to see how far she can push her limits and test her boundaries. And I think in general, we were really surprised that Octavia is still in Polis. I think at the end of last season, we all expected as she, you know, stabs Pike and then just strides out of the of the tower room. Um, we thought she was like leaving the city right then for good. We didn't expect to see her as early on as we are seeing her now. Yeah, this was a huge departure from both of our predictions. I think that we had been envisioning her like in the wilderness, like going to different clans, sort of like infiltrating them and taking her sweet revenge um and just her sticking around is surprising and sticking around so like actively mm-hmm. is is really intriguing her staying back with Kane and Abby is really unexpected development yeah um so we move on from that we see Clark and Bellamy discussing how to tell people about the end of the worlds um and as Bellamy is want to do he he wants to keep it a secret from everybody until they can kind of figure out what their next step is and this really calls back to season one in a fascinating way um when Murphy and 
stabbed Wells or they thought he stabbed Wells. And Clark and Bellamy were talking about, you know, how to tell people or not to tell people as Bellamy wanted to do. And then the consequences when Clark goes ahead and tells people without thinking it through. Absolutely. I mean, like beyond it just being a parallel, you can see the evolution of their relationship and how much trust has grown between them because she heeds his advice here, which was something that she absolutely would never have done and didn't do in season one. And at the time, that seemed maybe not wise, but understandable um, given their conflict. Um, But for this moment, it seems so earned that where they are at this point together and how they de- deliberate and discuss their leadership um, that he- she would listen to him. I think it sets this season off uh, with the right tone because there was so much, there was so much between them last season. Strife. <laughs> Strife. Um, and then, you know, forgiveness later on, but it's just setting the tone right now that we are 100% together in this. Even if we disagree to each other, we're going to present a united, a united front to people. Yeah. I think, they're learning to be politicians on the outside, but they still look at each other and know that they can take off the mask when they're alone together and they can still be um, free with one another. And we get a really lovely scene of Clark thanking Bellamy for keeping her alive after he kind of makes it a joke like, you know, I uh, I need a break from keeping you alive. Clark actually takes the time to seriously thank him for everything he's done for her. And that was an incredible moment because no one ever thinks Bellamy. No, I, I mean, he's the most underappreciated person in the in definitely Arcadia. I would venture to say actually the entire show. Yeah. Um, he's completely undervalued. I think he has an, a, a stigma around him from, you know, trying to murder Jaha in episode one by shooting him and, you know, how he managed to get his way onto the, the pod ship, uh, the drop ship. Um, I, I think there's just this like terrible stigma of, of, of he's a bad person and an untrustworthy person. And I think Clark, you know, historically has really been the only person who has seen him for how complex and and valuable he can be um and it's just wonderful to hear her say it out loud these words have have significance it's important to say them even though we know she's already been feeling this but to have her say them out loud to him and to have her acknowledge it out loud is is critical and it's like i i think that bellamy does know that clark appreciates him but just for bellamy to really get that assurance kind of like you know you never quite know until someone says something how they feel nice it is it's wonderful it's nice to hear um so the temperature in polis right now is damn cold (laughs) yeah or damn hot I mean it depends on (laughs) your point of view (laughs) um the grounders are blaming Clark or Juanheta for bringing this this city of light disaster onto them um we find out that Lexa actually killed people in the city of light as well which I think we were wondering about last season but didn't think it would actually be addressed but so she did kill people her own people and they're now gone in the real worlds um so do you think that it's fair that they blame one header, that they blame Sky Crew for this technological apocalypse? I do not think that it's fair. I feel like their worship, full, worshiping of the flame and the Becca, who is the first commander, and everything that is wrapped up in this sort of mythological technology is really it's I, I I do understand where they're coming from but I ultimately think that it is unfair for them to blame the sky crew for you know employing technology that they also worship it's just it's not as cut and dry as that 
I mean, I think they're not watching the TV show that we're watching where we can see everyone's point of view. Um, so I don't think it's fair. I agree with you. But I also under like I completely understand how they have kind of reached this conclusion because they never had to deal with this before Sky Crew landed. And suddenly it's just like problems abound and now everyone's dead and it's Sky Crew who's the one like left standing in its wake. So I get that. I also just like feel like it's all Jaha's fault and for <laughs> all of Sky Crew to take the blame for Jaha's mistakes feels unfair to me. Very true. Very true. Um, I also wanted to say the the one Hedda title is really interesting now because Clark has destroyed the City of Light. So she's given people back their free will. But in doing so, she's also pushing people back out into this world that is supposedly going to end in six months. And they all could die. Like, she doesn't know if they're going to be able to find a solution to save them. She believes it, or at least she wants to believe it. But she doesn't know, and she could have actually killed everybody just yeah, by doing that. she could have that. condemned them all to death. So she's uh, more Wanheda than ever, quite possibly. Yeah, I do think it's interesting how the term Wanheda has evolved as well. When she was first sort of assigned this title, given this title, it was with sort of like a reverent respect. Fear, clear fear, um, but definitely respect. The grounders are their violent culture. They respect strength, and I think giving somebody the, the name Commander of Death is a very strong name, and I think there was a, a high level of, of, of awe that was associated with this name. I think that has shifted, I think it's fair to say, and is now sort of used as, a, as, a, as an insult and with, you know, sort of with scorn. So it's, it's fascinating to see how they use language and, like, you know, very, like, specific names to sort of you know, signify a shift in attitude. Especially because this is the first time that most of Polis is experiencing her Wanheda-ness. I mean, before there were the tree crew um, soldiers that got burned up in season one. Yeah. And then in, in the mountain men in season two, which they no one's complaining about. Um, so this is them finally seeing Clark basically standing in the ashes with a bunch of dead people around her. Yeah. As, as usual, Clark has killed a lot of people. Um, Consciously so, consciously so, you know, in an effort to save, quote unquote, her people. And, you know, I think every season we we sort of like redefine what does that mean? Who are her people? What link, what, you know, do the means justify the ends? And so on and so forth. And I think the, the, the people in Polis are asking themselves, does it? I think we ask ourselves that every day watching this yes, show. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, so then, of course, we have the amazing intro, as always. I think it's one of my favorite show intros oh, no, of all time. It's definitely my favorite show yeah. intro. It's amazing. I, I'm, I'm still shocked sometimes that this is a show that's on the CW. And I think the CW has definitely grown in recent years. But this one definitely, it stands out. It does. I think, you know, even, you know, I think why the intro is so amazing is because the show doesn't have to be as smart as it is mm -hmm. it just doesn't need to be but it wants to be and in the credits they really show off how smart they are they juxtapose this sort of like religious and biblical you know sort of song choir choral music with these like images of you know droids and video feed and technology and that juxtaposition alone is is this attention filled um situation so you get immediately off the bat that this show is not shying away from those you know, complex dynamics. 
And the fact that we see Allie's drones in, it was, I think the first episode it was in was season two, episode one. Yep. We see Allie's drones in the intro and don't even realize what they are until at least the end of, of season two in season three. That was some amazing planning. It, it is. I mean, like, they are so, so thoughtful. I remember the day when we figured out I those know. were drones. Blown. Mind, Mind blown. blown. <laughs> Um, so Raven finally gets a hold of Clark and Bellamy on the radio and they tell her about the end of the world. Um, but before she kind of wants to hear anything, Raven needs to know how her friends are. And she is so relieved when Clark you know, picks up the, uh, the radio from Bellamy and says, I'm alive, Raven, thanks to you. And we just see this like look of intense release cross or relief cross her face. And that I think is something that we've been hoping for this season is more of Clark and Raven coming together girl power you know smart women making the world a better place yeah without drama I think this show really excels in sort of exploring these relationships and even from season one they set this up so that there was there's just no room for drama here they're not interested in that dynamic they're not interested in going there um when Finn when Raven came down and she discovered that Finn had moved on with Clark, you know, they could have extended that sort of catfightiness and and jealousy. But instead, the two girls realized that they are facing survival and they are both incredibly smart and huge assets to one another. And I think just had a lot of mutual respect and just moved on. I think I first took most notice of this show when um, Charlotte stabbed Wells and like the, the, the change in tone there. But the thing that made me really love this show was how they handled Clark's and Raven's relationship in season one. Yeah, that was the most refreshing thing I think I've ever seen. It was something that they just don't do on television. They're always pitting women against each other and to see women basically just saying, you know, I'm going to ignore this love interest over here and we're going to be friends. I don't I don't need to have that kind of conflict in my life. Um it was it was wonderful right, because they have enough self-worth and confidence in themselves and they appreciate it in other people too yeah um so clark sees someone wounded and kind of runs over only to discover that it is roan still alive and i think we all do a little bit of a cheer although i do use alive as a you know lightly because he's almost dead <laughs> he's mostly dead <laughs> nearly alive <laughs> um, but before she can do anything the infamous echo drags her up and holds a sword to her neck uh, and in true Clark fashion, she, of course, is trying to talk her way out of the situation. She promises that they can help Roan, but Echo is obviously not having it, having just, like, come out of the City of Light herself. Um, and then, of course, Bellamy comes running over, really pissed, yelling at Echo to let Clark go. And I love this look on Clark's face here. Just, like, total confusion. Does she have any idea who Echo is or the fact that Bellamy knows her and has, like, not just knows her, but has, like, a past with her? Yeah, he has history with her. I don't know how much Clark knows about Echo. I don't know if she knows anything because she left at the end of season two. Um, so Bellamy never mentioned any of that. And then she wasn't around when Echo came back to, you know, blow up Mount Weather. Yeah, no, I'm agreeing with you. I, yeah. I don't think she knows. I think Clark just puts on her, like, let's fix this hat. And whoever whoever's holding the sword to her throat, which is like every other day, um, I think she's used to it. She's just like, let's put the confrontation aside. Let's try and talk this out and see if we can find something that's mutually beneficial to us. Echo is just not interested. And I think that, you know, seeing Bellamy on first name basis with this girl who's holding a sword to her throat is a very confusing moment for yeah. Clark. But I also love that he comes like charging in. Like, of course. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> and also not just that, not just Bellamy coming in, but Echo not... Echo kind of wanting him to stay away, but she's not seeming like belligerent about it as much. She she's she knows him and she 
kind of doesn't want him to make things worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Bellamy and Echo, interesting dynamic. I think we've there was a lot of speculation after season two about what her character could possibly be. Um, season three, I think, diverted a lot of people's expectations. Uh, and so now we're here, having had Echo trick Bellamy into leaving Gina and a lot of his people in Mount Weather, and then for it to explode on them. <laughs> yeah, not a great, not a proud moment for her. And I also wonder what would have happened here if Bellamy hadn't showed up. Like, something about Bellamy being there almost seemed to calm Echo down. <laughs> yeah, well, I think her her um, experience with him in Mount Weather, where he was so steadfastly trying to help her escape... I do think she likes him. I mean, I think she likes him, likes him, but I also think that she likes him. Well, he's very attractive, so. <laughs> He'd have to be, like, dead. Um, <laughs> but, so I, I think she has a lot of faith in him that he is a, a positive force, ironically enough. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I don't think she knows exactly what his relationship is or the dynamic here is, but I think she's learning fast how attached he is to Clark. Uh, I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't shown up. Yeah, I, I, we actually learned here as well that Echo just came out of the City of Light. She saw Clark in the City of Light, and that was incredibly surprising. I don't think either of us expected Echo to be in there. No. Um, I guess that means she was forced to take the chip because it doesn't seem like something that she would have done voluntarily. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about more of that later, but just wanted to note that for now. So Echo Lark's Clark go and uh, basically declares that Polis is now under Asgata rule and then straight up slits the throat of an ambassador who steps in to say no. Uh, so she is not playing around. Yeah, this is not a democracy anymore. <laughs> and she forbids Sky Crew from leaving the city. So Sky Crew is not in a good place right now. Nope. They're being held captive. <laughs> Again. Again. It must be a day that it must why. be a season of the hundred. <laughs> Uh, so meanwhile, we see Jaha crying, or Jaha is kind of going over to a girl who's crying over a dead body, and he tries to help her, but she spits on him. Um, and I think we kind of touched on this earlier, but Jaha is really more responsible for what has happened, or really the only person responsible for what has happened, um, way more so than anybody else. Oh, yes. I think that's a very fair statement. And of course, at this point, we have our sarcasm king Murphy returning, uh, and he's obviously annoyed that Jaha is not trying to be the good guy after having, you know, went on his quest with him back in season two. And Jaha's like, ex- like letting people explode, and he's, you know, Throwing pushing them people off, off boats. And so, um, Murphy isn't isn't down for this, you know, transformation in Jaha. Uh, and it's really great to see them reunited once again. Yes, I love this. I think again, this is a great callback to earlier seasons when these two are, you know, through circumstances forced together and they are so opposite of one another. And and I think it's a really nice, like, re- reverse of fortune here when Murphy, when Jaha originally, like, extended that invitation to Murphy to go with him. Mur- Murphy was, uh, like, undeniably, like, the most reviled um, member of Sky, Sky Crew. And uh, Jaha was sort of, you know, maybe the most revered um they had named the camp after him (laughs) and we are now in a place where jaha is so much lower like he's not he's like not even a speck he is the bottom he's the bottom of the totem pole and i think murphy has risen in ranks since then you know maybe not as high as as he would like to have have risen but he has definitely arisen enough 
And, you know, he's now looking down on Jaha. And I think that sort of switch is really interesting. And their dynamic is always so fun to watch because I don't think you can pick two characters who are more polar opposites than Jaha and Murphy. Yeah, and where Jaha, you know, was always very super, like condescending and, and um, superior in everything he says, you know, is very snobby. And Murphy just, like, will not take the high road. He just can't help himself. And I, I wouldn't want him to. He is the cockroach after all. <laughs> And we have the return here of glo- uh, Go Float Yourself, which I don't think we've seen for a while or heard, um, but love it. <laughs> I love it, too. I mean, I think it's just, again, an, a testament to the show's con- continuity. Uh, they introduced this in the first episode of season one, and I love to see this sort of, like, texture of their of their culture and, and their um, society, and it just adds a little bit more richness to the world building. And it's also a great way of, of using a curse word without using a curse word. Absolutely. And we all know what they're actually yeah. saying. Um, and Mori is stalking up to leave because it's not safe for her kind here in Polis. Um, and never has been. And she had really just came back, she reveals, um, and took the chip because Jaha promised to take her to Murphy. Um, and I really appreciate that they explained why she took the chip because I don't think any of us see Amori as a character who wants to get rid of her pain. She kind of takes, not pride maybe, but she doesn't pity herself in any way. No, I think she was really good at taking finding inner strength when she's faced with difficulty or tragedy I don't think she's interested in in the easy way out um and you know I think we were both a little confused why she would have taken the chip in the first place and I'm really glad they just put in that one line to clarify her character which again they don't need to do there's no real reason for that other than it just adds like another layer to her character and and sort of rounds her out a little more and it's great. Yeah. Um, Murphy convinces her to come to Arcadia, even though Echo is a little bit skeptical. Um, because apparently Murphy, I don't know if Murphy has been giving Amori a different version of the truth or whether Amori just doesn't really see murder as that big of a deal. But uh, I think every time Murphy's been cast out has been fairly warranted. Maybe not when he was actually put no, he, even when he was put in jail, he did set someone's uh, rooms on fire. I was going to so. say he burnt down their food. Yeah. All their food. So, I mean, I think we've all, I mean, we, we've come to love Murphy and who he is, which is a snarky little jerk. <laughs> um, but he's definitely not innocent. It's not like they're casting out this like sweet little flower, you know? <laughs> no. And again, I just don't think that he was like protesting on behalf of his exilers. I'm sure he was presenting a, a side of the story and didn't really take it upon himself to be like, but to be fair, I did all of these horrible things and it was totally justified for them to kick me out. I think he might have told. I just like don't think Murphy's don't think, the type to sugarcoat things. I don't think he lied. I'm just saying I don't think he like was defending them. <laughs> Um, so we flash into the temple at the bottom of the Polis Tower, and we see Clark looking at the flame in her hand. Um, and then over in the corner, we have Kane and Abby comforting, comforting each other. And it's just so welcome to finally see Kane and Abby getting a chance to just be with each other. Um, it's been never. It's been never. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think their relationship is, is really beautiful, and I love where they started together. And where I mean, it's my favorite kind of ship is the hate to love. Um, and I secretly shipped them long before it should have been appropriate to ship them. Way before I shipped them. Yeah, I, sh- I shipped them from the first episode. It which took me w- a long time to get on board with Kane. I, I couldn't help myself. Um, <laughs> but I'm really glad that 
they moved him around and gave him a an arc that made him worthy of her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wouldn't want them to have gotten together anytime sooner. No, this is perfect. And I love that Clark is kind of, you know, looking at the flame and then looking at her mom and seeing her mom maybe not happy, but in a moment of peace with someone new um, after everything that she's been through. And just kind of seeing those parallels of her mom being able to move on with someone new after losing a person that she loved. And in the same way that Lexa, I mean, like Clark literally just saw Lexa hours ago in the chip. So it's still very fresh to her. Yeah. I also think that it's interesting too, because there's always that sort of question of like, am I worthy? Do I deserve love? You know, I think both of them, Abby and Clark, have made really tough calls sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad, and they have to live with those choices. And I think I don't think it's easy for you to feel like you've you've done bad things and think that you also are worthy of receiving someone's love. I think getting to a place where you accept yourself and like move on from past loves who have who you've lost you know those are two separate things and Abby has somehow found a way of of you know coming through all of that into this new place with Kane and that's a that's a an important lesson that is a, an important window for Clark to be looking through and just for Clark to know that even if things are absolutely horrible now there is a point in the future where she could maybe find happiness yeah yeah. Someday. Probably far away. Not Well, can't be too far. They have six months. <laughs> um, so Endra enters and we have the most epic hug in the history of hugs between BFFs forever, Kane and Indra, um, which I was so happy to see. I don't think that I didn't really expect Indra would blame him in any way, but it was still nice for that reassurance, you know? Yeah, I wasn't worried about that at all. It just is so nice to see these two characters who were very wary of each other um, and who very quickly really started to respect one another for the, for both of their skill sets and their leadership qualities. I think they see, you know, strength in each other and they're very complimentary and I, I just love their relationship. I do too. <laughs> they're just genuinely, like, thrilled with one another. They genuinely care about one another, yeah. which is just wonderful to see I mean it doesn't happen often on this show (laughs) um Indra thinks that the only way to remove Asgata from Polis is by force but to do so they'll need more clans on their sides and to do that they will need the flame uh and Clark isn't really having this she doesn't want to give it up what do you think about this um I think there's a couple of things going on here I think there that she does have an emotional connection to the flame because it is her last connection to Lexa um and but I also think that you know she's at the end of the day like Clark Clark is super practical and I think she knows that you know if this was the only way out of this she would give it up if it meant saving her people but I also think she she views the flame as a bargaining chip and she's not ready to give that chip up I think she knows that there are that it's going to come in handy later on and she needs to hold on to this this is her last sort of bargaining chip that she's got I totally agree um but I do think that the emotions kind of override that. I think, I mean, I mean, I think she like deep down knows that she could use this, this flame for, to help her in some way. But I think the real reason she says no right now is because she doesn't want to let Lexa go. Yeah. I think there's a knee jerk reaction here yeah. of no, this is mine. And that's clearly emotional. But I think, you know, as the scene progresses, it turns out that she, she does need it. I, I think she's, she's so smart. She's sort of set up sometimes ahead of herself. Um, 
Yeah, because she at this point tells them uh, that the apocalypse is nigh. (laughs) I love how much faith. Well, no one had faith in Allie. Everyone was like, "Mm," and you believe her. And then Bellamy comes right in and is like, Raven is looking into it. Raven we trust. Right. If Raven says it's an apocalypse, it's an apocalypse. But at this point, it's like, you know, one problem at a time. Before they can deal with the apocalypse, they have to get out of Polis with their heads still intact. Um, But to do that, they have to save Roan. And how are they going to do that? They are going to surrender. Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. Um, So I guess wrapping up this scene, I cannot believe all of these characters are in one scene talking together. I know. It feels like Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure they've ever been in one scene together, all of these characters. No, and they're sort of all participating on equal levels. You know, it's not like there's a hierarchy here. Um, they're all sort of equally, very democratically approaching this problem and and solving it together. They're all bringing something exactly. to this discussion. And I don't think that anyone's being snubbed mm-hmm. either, you know, which is, is a new dynamic that we haven't really ever witnessed with these collection of people before. And it's also cool to see as, you know, for the very first time, undisputed, Clark is the de facto leader. Yeah, we've never seen that before. I feel like, you know, for as smart and capable as she is and for how long she has been leading um it's taken a really long time for the uh, the adults for lack of a better word um to recognize that position that she holds and unquestion it yeah it's like to be fair like Clark has been leading since season one but this is finally the scene where she gets the respect that she deserves right and without any um hesitation Mm mm-hmm um, so we flash to seeing Jaha bringing Echo on Tari's body kind of wrapped up. Uh, and in return, Echo orders her soldiers to show Jaha how they welcome the bringer of the key, which is a beating. A lot of beating. Torture? <laughs> Torture. Echo is told that Skyker is there to talk, but she says she will only talk to Bellamy. It's a lot of trust. Yeah, she's a lot of faith in Bellamy. <laughs> I would say that it's like more than faith. I think she's got a thing. <laughs> I think she has a thing for him. We'll talk about that at the end, but um, I don't disagree. I don't know if I agree. I think I'm like somewhere in between. I think she she has like, I mean, I think she's we'll a little a, attracted. We'll take more. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, and so, you know, Jaha stumbles over to Kane and says, "It were, it's worked. She's in, you know, wink, wink. Subtle. Subtle. <laughs> and then we come to find out, back in the throne room, it was never Antari. It was Octavia. She was fake dead Antari. And then she just kind of, you know, pops out of her little, you know, cocoon of, of, of wrappings and kills all the warriors and they're like a ninja. Yeah, she takes them all out. <laughs> just without even blinking. No. I mean, and these are guards. They're trained warriors. And, and I, she takes them all out. Yeah. So quickly. I mean, to be fair, they weren't really paying attention. Was still, still, still. It was. It was. I mean, maybe impressive isn't the right word to use when you're murdering people. But I think, it's, I think that's what it is. It's fine. <laughs> I. This is the fight that will never end. But I don't understand where she learned to fight this well. Yeah, you're gonna have to let this go. I. I just. She. Ju- I mean, I know she's been practicing, but these are Asgata warriors who've probably been killing since they were, you know, seven. I, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'm going to try to let it go. She's just a prodigy. The woman is born to be a ninja. A murder prodigy. Assassin is, I think, the term. <laughs> um, Octavia lets Clark and Abby in, and they see, you know, Roan lying almost dead on a table. Um, and Abby kind of takes a second to look around at the dead men that she sees and, and kind of looks over at Octavia. Um, and I think this is, I mean, first off, 
a little judgy. <laughs> You've done horrible things too, Abby, as have we all. Octavia's working out her issues in her own way, which happens to be assassination. <laughs> you know, no big deal. Right. I, I mean, I can't imagine why that would disturb Abby, who's a doctor and has sworn, sworn an oath to save people. I can't imagine why that would jart with her. But kind of calling back to Octavia, taking out those men without blinking, um, it this almost seems like the only time she's able to feel anything. Yeah, she had a, like a visceral like um, response, like, an, you know, beyond adrenaline. I mean, she she you could see it in her face. She was emoting. It like, was like, I mean, joy. It, I don't know if it was joy, but it was definitely like determination to get in and get that done. Um, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Yes, definitely. And I, I'm interested to see how that evolves throughout this season because we, we know that, you know, Lincoln just died not too recently um, or, or pretty recently. And she's still kind of in this numb phase where she's you know, kind of step back from everyone that she loves. And this seems to be the only way that she's able to get through it. Yeah, this is how she's coping, which isn't healthy. So we get an amazing scene where Murphy me reunites uh, <laughs> our favorite bros, Bellamy and Murphy. Um, we see Bellamy give Murphy his weapon like it's old times. We've come so far. Yeah, again, this is another instance calling back to earlier episodes where and and in a specific way where you can see that evolution you know they have these sort of like clear you know almost like windows of frames of of shots that are almost identical except for like what's the one thing that's changed Mm -hmm. and the fact that the first time we saw Murphy try to get a weapon Bellamy was like absolutely not (laughs) the second time you know when they were running from tree crew you know, he Murphy was begging for a weapon to defend himself and Murphy gave him one, basically admitting that he trusted him as so much not to stab him in the back with it. <laughs> you know, to this where he literally hands him a machine gun without a without a care. You know, it didn't even occur to him that, that Murphy would use it against them. Um and that's a an incredible evolution to for how quickly, you know, how short amount of time this has actually taken place. Yeah. And it's really nice that they point it out. Completely agree, and I'm so glad to see them back together. I mean, I realized they were in the show, in Showtime, just together, and you know the elevator, and then in the fight scene. But their relationship is so much fun. And it is. I I'm interested to see where this season goes. Um, but of course, the second Bellamy walks over to Asgata and Murphy realizes what you know he's dealing with here, uh, he second guesses his newfound devotion to his people and leaves with Amori, just like old times. Yeah, at least he's consistent. I mean, I think there was some fuss online that he could betray them in that way. But it is completely in his character to do this. It would have felt like he'd been possessed if he had suddenly found some inner Gryffindor, you know? Murphy is a cockroach, and I mean that in the best possible way. He's a Slytherin. He does what he needs to do to survive, and I have to respect that. I do too, but I'm really glad that they chose to keep him as with this consistent decision. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Echo, of course, wants to remind Bellamy that she saved his life and she apologizes that she couldn't have him get Jean out as well, um, but she was just following orders. And Bellamy has this really great line where he says, I wish it was that easy, um, which kind of, I think, has a couple of different meanings here. Of course, first and foremost, it's, you know, as if I, I wish that an apology could make what you did to me better but it doesn't at all right but then of course we have you know deep down Bellamy wishes that he could apologize and make 
better what he's done, um, the massacre in season three. Uh, he, he would love to be able to feel absolved of that, but he knows that no amount of apologizing is going to make him feel free from that. Right. And he was following orders. I mean, this is a clear callback to that moment when you have to make a call and Echo is clearly happily ready to write it off as, you know, it's not my fault. I was just told to do this and I was executing somebody else's plan. And Bellamy really is grappling with what that means for him and his conscious and his his moral compass. Like, even if you have orders, we all make our own choices. We No one forces us to do things. Right. And do. if you believe something's right, then you, you know, that assuages your guilt and if you believe it's wrong um I think it gets complicated when you have you know a different point of view from one side and the other and that's exactly what Bellamy's sitting on right now we mentioned earlier that Echo had been into the city of light and she kind of brings that up in this discussion um talking about how all the pain went away and now it's back and she actually looks affected by the fact that she's back in this real world which I didn't expect. Um, it's kind of like, what hidden pain does Echo have that we don't know about? Because it seems like she almost, not revels in pain, but she seems very used to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, again, you know, what are, what kind of pain are we talking about? Physical, emotional, psychological, probably all three. Um, I think it's really easy to, like, paint Echo as, like, the, the really, you know... Machiavellian villain. Right, mustache-twirling <laughs> villain. And giving her these sort of shades of gray of her own internal pain um, and conflicts and trauma in her life, you can't just write her off as like an evil person. You know, she's complicated. Like all of them are. There are only shades of gray in this show and she's she's one of them. And there's a ton we still have to learn about her. And I'm really hoping we get some um, like past information and then some like deep emotional background to her character because I think that she's probably going to be around a lot this season. Yeah, given the amount of screen time they allotted her just in the first episode, I think is really indicative of of how prominent they're going to feature her throughout the season. I think, um, you know, buckle in. I think it's Echo's season to shine. (laughs) And I'm really, really excited to see what we get from her. To shine or like fail miserably. I don't know. I I feel like they like her. I I have faith that Echo is going to kind of rise above what she is at this moment. But I guess we'll see. Um, So Bellamy tries to negotiate terms of surrender with Asgata, but Echo is not really interested in that. Um, And in fact, when Bellamy offers them guns, Echo says that Tree Crew, who's, I think, I guess, are they the most vocal about guns or anti-guns? Because she specifically calls out Tree Crew here. Do we know that? Is that canon? I don't know if that's canon or Maybe not. Maybe it's just because they were the ones who lived closest to the mountain men, and that's why they're so anti-gun. Um, but she says well, that... Well, it didn't... Weren't the, it wasn't a massacre by, from guns? He sh- They shot them down with oh, guns. That's, right. That's, that's an that's excellent why. point. Well, I mean, they were they were really anti-gun before they that They were, well. but I think it's, that's an a even great point. Pointed, it's even more pointed because they were murdered, like massacred with these machine guns. That was sort of like the whole point that Pike needed those machine guns. And I think... That's why Tree Crew at this moment in time is so anti-gun. And Echo brings that up by saying even Tree Crew can't even argue because Bell killed them all. Yeah, just going to dig that knife in a little deeper. Um, and this is, I think, the first vocal reminder we've had of the massacre. Is that is that right? About the, the crimes or the the things that Bellamy has done in his past? Yeah, I think this is the first mention of it in, in this, this season. episode. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see how this is going to affect Bell's actions the rest of the season. I know that this episode, he's definitely making, he has, he has a goal to kind of move forward and turn himself around and be as helpful as he can. 
But I think that this massacre is going to weigh on him. And what's important is him being able to find the balance between keeping this in the back of his mind and having this inform his decisions going forward, having him make better choices while also like not letting it drag him down to the point where it affects his leadership. Absolutely. And I think it's like critically important just from like a narrative point of view that they give him that weight, that it's not okay for him to just commit these atrocities and then be able to move on from them I think him struggling with it and grappling with it is indicative of his his um his learning from it and how he processes it and I feel like if they had written it off I would have been annoyed um and I would have had to written him off as well but because he does struggle with it and because it does weigh on his mind I can respect him a little bit more yeah absolutely um Unfortunately, Echo cannot accept their terms. She can't trust Sky Crew, and that's not really a surprise. Um, <laughs> but as Echo turns to leave, Bellamy grabs her arm, and she just throws him on the ground and holds a knife to his throat and is basically like, you're done now. Yeah. Um, this was a very physical scene. I mean, Echo is a very physical person and also, like, you know, th- a violent person. Um, I, I <laughs> couldn't help but, like, read this scene as, like, her, like, playing with him a little bit I know that's not the way I was supposed to read it but that's what it seemed like to me um we always look at things through shipper goggles yeah I just like can't help I mean I don't ship them at all but I do think she is attracted to him I think he intrigues her so I I don't think having an excuse to be that close to him was problematic for her (laughs) like I felt like it was a little bit of an overreaction he like touched her arm and she like (laughs) hot like threw him over her shoulder and like pinned him on the ground to be fair she had to show him who's boss in front of her people yeah no I get get it I'm just saying that like it was a little bit of an overreaction she wanted an excuse to be that close to him I think there could have been other ways (laughs) um so at this moment to protect Belle uh Kane tells Indra to lay their guns down and Indra's kind of not sure but she does because Kane himself has faith that Abby is going to come through. And I love this scene showing, you know, just how much faith Indra has in Kane and just how much faith Kane has in Abby. Yeah, this is almost like a math equation because I don't think that Indra like inherently knows Abby well enough to trust her, mm-hmm. but she trusts Kane and Kane trusts Abby. So there's this like beautiful transference of trust um that it is feels like it can't be broken and I just really appreciate that level of security that they all have with one another and it just is another signifying you know moment of how far we've come when no one trusted anybody and, and luckily Kane was right in this situation because Clark and Abby pull the bullet out of Roan and you know almost make it out uh, but then Echo of course catches them and tries to cut off Clark's head yeah hasty <laughs> In true TV fashion, though, of course, Roan wakes up just in time and has to decide what to do with Echo and Sky Crew. Uh, yeah. Can I just say, he's beautiful even when he's almost dead. Yeah. Yeah, he is. So later in the throne room, we see Roan talking to Echo, um, and he tells Echo not to ride down the Sky Crew who escaped Polis. Echo, of course, worries that this will make him look weak in front of his people, but to that, he responds the only way Roan ever could. He cauterizes his bullet wound and doesn't even flinch. Nope. Nope. I mean, and again, he, or not again, but really, he's a drama queen. Oh my I gosh. mean, the fact that he has this sort of like steadfast, unflinching face while he's doing this like intensely dramatic thing only heightens the drama. I mean, he's like the biggest drama queen in the hundred. It's both, and, it's both strangely sexy and incredibly melodramatic. Yeah, and also, you know, like, he's, like, a crowned king, so it just sort of, like, adds to this, like, <laughs> I, I just, like, he's, he's like, 
you know, a little ridiculous. He's a ridiculous person. <laughs> A hot, ridiculous person. Uh, Echo reminds Rowan that uh, she's loyal to her clan and her king, and she wants to help him rule everything like his mother and Ontari never could. And this is kind of the first... A lot of this episode, we weren't really sure who Echo was loyal to. Um, and I think this scene kind of helps smooth things out that she's loyal first and foremost to her people. And at this point, Roan is the head of her people, and so she's going to be loyal to him, but that's not necessarily going to stay the same way in the future. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that she will remain loyal to Roan as long as Roan is useful to her and as Geta. And the day that he becomes a hindrance is the day that she no longer serves him. Uh, she She's very manipulative. We know she's a spy. And it's clear here the way she like sort of, you know, uses his mother against him. And, and it compares him like psychologically to his mom and his grandfather and his grandfather and this sort of like you know dynasty of of kings and queens um that she's she's not fooling around she knows where his buttons are she knows how to push him she knows how to manipulate him or at least she thinks he does she does Mm -hmm. and it's it's clear that rowan notices this and he's already a little bit annoyed i think (laughs) he's already a little bit tired of these games she's trying to play with him and he's he's much more direct and straightforward i think and she is much more circuitous and manipulative also he i mean he doesn't want anyone to tell him what to do especially echo i don't think he he respects her enough to really have her give him advice right but he's also i think she is under she underestimates him and i think he does not underestimate her absolutely um i'm not sure rowan underestimates anybody no no he He has uh, a very good sense Mm -hmm. of people um, and speaking of his grandfather, she hands him his grandfather's like bone crown. It's the coolest <laughs> crown ever. Another, it's a melodramatic crown for a melodramatic man. Um, and I think, do you think it's interesting that, I mean, we, we knew this from last season, but as Geta passes down power through bloodline and not just bloodline, but it's like their royalty. Um, and how, I mean, do you see, like the way I see it is that if Roan screws up, they're going to kill him and bring in another new dynasty of, of a person, maybe from his war chiefs or, or something. I, I don't see it being like, you know, ride or die to our, our royal bloodline. Yeah, no, I don't think they get into the like, well, you're my second cousin once removed through marriage. Like you are the next in the line for the throne. Here you go and hand it to you. I do think there is a much more um, deeper respect for bloodlines here than we've ever seen. I think most of the other clans... I, th- I, th- I think from what we've seen is that they're all very democratic um, mm-hmm. and they they respect strength. They elect their leaders for, you know, a show of strength. Uh, this is the only clan that we know of that really um, puts most most of their priority on, on bloodline and dynasty. And I think what, from everything we've heard from his grandfather and his mother, they were very severe rulers, strict rulers. Um, Roan doesn't seem to be as... Uh, as bloodthirsty as his predecessors um, in his family. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's like the weak link. I think that's what Echo is foreshadowing here. Is that what, she, is that what she's thinking? Um, but I, I, I don't think that's true. I definitely agree that um, Roan has his own kind of power that's kind of different from his mother's and I'm assuming his grandfather's. Um, I do think that that could have stemmed from him living outside of Asgata for who really knows how long at this point. I agree. I mean, that's always the the risk you take when you exile one of your own is that they're going to go out and they're going to like learn about new cultures and new ways of life and new ways of thinking. And so you lose that sort of like inherent 
uniqueness of of the person you know they're no longer the same as they were before they left and that's definitely the case with Rowan and he's just so brutally smart that I think he's able to take all the pieces that Asgata in the past has kind of taught him and then also bring in these new I don't know if peaceful is the word I would use to describe, but less bloodthirsty and kind of merge them in a way that, you know, he really, I think he wants to do right by his people, but I don't think that he's going to do it by just, you know, murdering everybody. Yeah. He's not going to, you know, uphold the like, he's not Naya. He's he's not going to uphold the party platform. I think he's interested in changing things up. Do you think he wants to be king? I do. I think he does. Do you think he just trusts in himself enough to know that he's the best person or he really wants power? I have seen – there's a couple of scenes coming up where I feel like he he seems like he wants power, but I can also see that this is clearly like he recognizes that he's the most capable person for the job and just out of pure strategy, like recognizes that he's the only one who can do this, sort of like how – you know, all the other leaders that we've respected in this show, like Clark, like Rexa, you know, it's not necessarily that they want to hold this power, but they know that they're the right person for the job. So they take it anyway. Yeah. Um, so we move in and see everyone locked in a cell. Uh, Clark is looking at the flame in her hand. Um, and we see kind of Octavia in the corner, recognize that pain from Clark and she turns away. It's like, she can't even watch someone go through what she herself has gone through and is really still going through. It's it's too much for her. It's too raw. She's still too numb to that to really be able to take it in. Um, and Abby notices Clark, uh, Clark crying and kind of scoots over and comforts her. And we get this really wonderful scene where Clark just simply says, I loved her mom. And Abby says, I know. Um, and this was a sweet, um, like bittersweet, really, callback to Lexa. And... And how important Lexa was in her life. And like I said earlier, she just died. I mean, didn't just die, but Clark just saw her and it's still very... She just had to say goodbye all over again. So that's kind of reopened that wound that I think had at least numbed a little bit in the weeks that Lexa's been dead. I also think that now that the, you know, emergency crisis is is over um, and Clark has a minute to sit here and contemplate, you know, the, the... events of the past weeks you know it's all sort of catching up to her and she's looking at this flame in her hand and she can't help herself she gets emotional she hasn't allowed herself a minute to breathe and process in a long time and she's just all sort of catches up with her in this moment um and I think Abby's reaction and the fact that it's an almost identical reaction to when she learned about Clark's um feelings for Finn or really when she watched Clark murder murder Finn, Finn. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important not only to have this kind of representation of bisexuality and queerness, but also to have a parent's acknowledgement and acceptance of it. I mean, that's that's something we never, almost never get to see on TV, especially like regular cable TV. Um, And it's just the fact that she didn't even blink, that she already knew that that it wasn't it wasn't about her being in love with Lexa. It was about that Clark felt comfortable enough to come to Abby and talk about something that made her so vulnerable and I knew that Abby would help her and comfort her is really what's so amazing about this scene right it wasn't just the fact that Clark was you know telling her that she was in love with a woman and 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 Abby treats it the same as if she were in love with the man it's also the fact that Abby knows because Abby has been paying attention to her daughter and she she knows 
she can read the expressions on her daughter's face and know what that means. Yeah, and she's just in tune with her enough to like understand what's going on here and doesn't need to be told. And when she is told, it's not a big deal. It's a matter of fact. And it's it's that they can connect, you know, on it from a mother and a daughter. We also see in this scene Kane noticing Bellamy watching this exchange between Clark and Abby. And he has this really complex look on his face and I think one thing Bob Morley does amazingly is he's able to portray this you know huge range of emotions with one single expression and I think in this particular instance um of course there's he loves Clark in the sense that she's you know his partner and he respects her and seeing her in pain hurts him um I think there's also a bit of he lost Gina and I'm not sure if he was in love with her or if he just, you know, really cared for her. Um, but he, he did lose her early. He, he, he lost her in the same way that Clara Clark lost Lexa. And then of course there could be a little bit of jealousy, not in a possessive way, not in a, like you're mine. I'm mad you were with someone else, but just maybe hurt, um, that she kind of had that with somebody when he, potentially has romantic feelings for her yeah I don't even think it's I don't even think hurt is the right word I think he was just a little bit sad for himself yeah yeah I think that he is happy or could have been happy that Clark was with someone that made her happy I think number one I think he wants her to be happy I think he's a little bit sad that she's not happy with with him him. yeah um but that has nothing to do with the way he sort of comes to their relationship first and foremost to her he is a friend and he's there to be the person that she can lean on and however she needs it's more than a friend they're like partners confidants we'll get into that later their relationship is a bit hard to explain (laughs) um and then we see echo come in and grab clark and drag her off to the throne room to talk to roan um and we, we get this great scene with roan kind of looking at her and just being like it's always something with you clark (laughs) so their relationship has come a long ways since or maybe not actually that long of a way since no, the I, I beginning feel, of season three I feel like they're always very playful with each other I mean even when they were mortal enemies and he was tracking her and kidnapping her and abducting her and tying her up I think she amused him and I think you know vice versa I think he amuses her as well I think he amuses her more now maybe amuses isn't even the right word she she likes him. I don't think she liked him when he kidnapped her. No. I don't think she was here for that. No, but he was definitely <laughs> amused by her. Uh, absolutely. He really likes her. I mean, he values intelligence and she's clearly, you know, brilliant. Yeah. And no, I, I think he just genuinely, he finds her very interesting. And I don't think that they would call themselves friends by any means. No. But I also don't think they want to kill each other. No. Which is good. <laughs> no, I, I think that if, you know, it came to it and it was the, you know, right thing for his people, he would do it but he wouldn't like it yeah he would not he does not want to kill her he would like to find another way to solve this um and Clark tells him that the world is about to be destroyed and begs him to honor their coalition so that they can go home and figure out how to keep everybody alive uh but Rowan at this point kind of hears the chaos outside and realizes that if he lets Clark live he's going to be dead in as he puts it six days not six months um and at this point Clark kind of pauses and we see her thinking it over. And I think at this point she realizes that she really only has one choice and she gives him the flame. Um, So this, I think, has a lot of significance for Clark's character at this moment. I mean, she's, you know, you see tears running down her face as she's doing it. It's not just here's my bargaining chip. Like, it's very much like I have to give away Lexa. 
yeah. and move forward. This is the last piece of her that I have and I'm willingly giving it up to save the people that I love. And she would want her to. I think she knows that. Um, Lex- she doesn't, right. She doesn't have time to mourn right now because she has to save the world again. <laughs> and Alexa would respect that. Absolutely. Um, uh, but that doesn't make it any easier. And, you know, as they, you know, foreshadowed in the beginning of the episode, this bargaining chip is literally the last card she has to play. Uh, and I love how Rowan kind of asks her to give him one good reason for him not to take the flame and just cut her head off. And Clark's like, I just did. And I think that's what this whole scene is about, is is for Rowan to find a way not to kill Clark. He wants to save his people. He doesn't want Clark to die, but he also, you know, wants to keep leading. Um, yeah, I don't think that was like a rhetorical question. <laughs> I think that was an earnest question. Like, give me a reason. Like, what what's the reason here that I can keep you alive? And she's like, here you go. Because I can keep you alive. Right. Uh, so we see him addressing the crowd in Polis. Uh, he announces that he will honor Lex's coalition, including the Sky Crew as the 13th clan, and that until another Nightblood ascends, he is acting commander because he is Keeper of the Flame. And he shows everybody they didn't know the flame was, they thought uh, one hit had lost it, honestly. And so seeing the flame back, there was, there was a lot of passionate reactions, um, including a girl in the crowd uh, screaming that what Rowan is saying is blasphemy. So this girl, this this mysterious girl in the crowd, in the crowd, we uh, know her name is Gaia from um, kind of, you know, I think an EW article came out. Yeah, there was some marketing stuff about her. Uh, and we don't really know anything about her. So, well, the EW article called her a flamekeeper scout. Um, and I think. I think from that we can gather that she's definitely like a, a devotee of the religion. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's, you know, prominently placing her in this sort of like, you know, scene where she screams in a crowd, you know, sets up this sort of dichotomy um, between religion and technology where, again, I think this show really excels in this dialogue. And I'm really excited for what this means for the rest of the season and how they sort of interplay between those two yeah, I, I'm already, like, in love with this girl. I cannot wait well, to see what she does. she's, like, stunningly beautiful, too. <laughs> and she's, I mean, she's just interesting. You know, I think seeing someone already kind of opposing um, Roan claiming the, the flame is... I think whenever you have a young person who's willing to speak to power um, is is interesting and, and exciting. Yeah. Um, so we see Echo kind of walking up to Bellamy, not pleased at all, which seems to be a theme with her. She's never happy. She's never happy. Um, she gives Bellamy the sigil, the sigil of Asgata, uh, which is apparently going to allow them to be safe in Asgata lands if he just shows them this kind of metal. Yeah, I have my doubts about that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I've met the rest of the clans. I don't know how much I have faith in this like metal, dusty... They're more of like a stab first, ask questions later bunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Echo, of course, asks Bellamy if they'll ever, ever be able to trust each other again. And Bellamy says, I doubt it. <laughs> like, what did Echo expect? I think Echo really feels like she burned a bridge here. I think, like we were saying earlier, she really respects him. I think she likes him. I think he earned her trust when he tried to help her out in um, – in, uh, with mountain men and I think she's a little bit regretful that I don't think she regrets a single action she's done because I think they were all made for the sake of her people but I do think she regrets the situation they're in now where they where she's burned this bridge I don't know if I'd say that she likes him but I think she definitely 
respects him or at least respects him over anyone else. When I say like, I don't mean romantically. I mean like has an affinity for him. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm not even sure if she like has that affinity as much as she knows what he's like and and how he kind of carries himself. And he he's a very truthful person. And I, I think she's realized that even being with him, you know, what, two days. Yeah. I also think that, you know, like we said, um, like we said earlier, she's aware of, of how smart Bellamy and Clark are. They saved them all from the city of light. I think either what they're, even though she's not willing to admit that publicly and she puts, you know, sort of a persona on about how much she hates them and how useless they are and how they should all die. I think she does know that they're a valuable resource. They understand technology. Um, they've come in handy a lot, you know, for all of the, you know, woes that they've brought with them. I do think that she realizes if she ever needed to reach out, if they needed them again, you know, Bellamy could have been an ambassador. And I, I don't think that, you know, that relationship is as secure as it was. Yeah, I also think that um, Bellamy, he, I th- I'm, I'm not sure he can ever trust her, um, but I do hope that he's able to come to work with her in the future. I mean, I'm assuming they're going to need to work together. I'm sure they will. I mean, Bellamy's not anywhere near as forgiving as someone like Clark is. Um, so I, I can see him kind of carrying that grudge to his grave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we get a scene where Clark, Bellamy, Abby, and Kane all are saying goodbye. Um, and this wonderful moment between Kane and Bellamy where they kind of are hugging goodbye and Bellamy or Kane pulls him close and is saying, you know, Bellamy, you, you turn the page. You turn the page. You don't look back. You do better today than you did yesterday. And before you know it, you'll deserve to survive. And Bellamy just says, you know, I hope so. Um, I, I love this scene because Kane sees himself as being the person for Bellamy that he wishes he had when he had made horrible decisions like supporting the calling in season one. Um, and I think he's speaking as much for himself as he, or to himself as he's speaking to Bell, just, you know, telling himself that he's got to move on and be the leader that he knows he can be. It's not going to help anyone in this world if you have to die if you've committed a crime because Bellamy and Kane still have a lot to offer as leaders, even though they've both done horrible things in their life yeah and I I love the way that they set up this sort of parallel structure between Abby and Clark and Bellamy and Kane um where you can clearly see you know they're sort of all they're sort of walking the same paths as their predecessors and their predecessors are looking at their younger counterparts recognizing the mistakes that they've made themselves and trying to offer some sort of guidance to them but ultimately like it's a path that you have to walk alone um, and I do really think that Kane and Bellamy recognize how they are each each other's sort of surrogate father and son and how they're not willing to sort of throw that away. You know, I think they both are really invested in continuing this relationship and how it's progressing for each other in a way that neither have had before. Um, and I, it's just really beautiful to watch them sort of like knit this sort of back together and sort of grow something. Right, this is the first moment that kind of reaffirms their relationship because where they left things last season, uh, it wasn't great. <laughs> no, it was rocky. So I'm glad to see them back on the same page, yeah. no pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> they're reaffirming their feelings. Um, and then Bellamy and Clark leave and Kane and Abby kind of watch them go. And Kane says, the youth have inherited the earth. And Abby says, and they have six months to save it. And this is a real kind of passing of the baton, which, to be honest, was really passed when the kids were sent to earth back in season one. Right. But- Again, I think it's taken the adults a little bit of a time to catch up to the fact that they've been 
irrelevant is maybe the wrong word, but definitely not in charge um, <laughs> for a while now. Uh, and it's nice that they can finally put that to rest. They're no longer vying for that position of power. And they're really gracious, graciously handing the baton over in a way that makes it sort of like, you know, this is sort of wrapped up. Right. They're, they're leaving it in this scene and realizing that they will not be the ones to save the world. Like they're going to be the supporting characters and the new generation is going to be the ones to step up and, and keep kind of taking this this saga of living on the ground forward. Right. And they they haven't been able to relinquish that power until now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we hear Bellamy call Clark princess mm-hmm. as they're on their way out. And I love... Like, Juan Heda is kind of a reminder of Clark's worst sins, and she's never liked that title. It's always kind of thrown in her face. There's um, a lot of baggage with that title. Not that she likes princess, but I think this kind of brings them back to an earlier time and, like, reestablishes the fact that Bellamy still sees them and respects her as much as he did in season one, the end of season one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe not the beginning of season one, but he's just kind of reminding her that, you know, he's still here they're going to move forward. You know, he, he a little bit of levity is nice. Yeah, it's playful. I think that he recognizes that this is a huge burden on both of them. And I think he always, the caretaker, is doing whatever he can to sort of alleviate that emotional burden that she is holding onto so strongly and injects it with humor. And, you know, this sort of level of, of understanding of her character and also like just as a person who can observe this in other people I mean like he's a highly emotive person oh yeah um way more than she is (laughs) and it's just really nice to see him sort of respond you know in any way that he's like a chameleon Mm -hmm. um almost to what she needs and it's just an incredible and, and as an actor Bob Morley does this beautifully um it's just an incredible to watch and it was so much fun to hear him say princess so now they are off to figure out how to keep everyone alive. Yes. So um, on to the B-plot. We're back in Arcadia. Uh, we see that Raven is trying to get the mainframe back online after Allie shut it down last season. Um, Jasper points out that Allie has apparently upgraded Raven's brain because she can code now when she's not a coder. What does this mean? I mean, I think we're going to find out what this means. <laughs> I I don't think so. I think that's going to be like the last thing we hear about it. I think that. It's it's funny that the smartest person got the upgrade. Um, I think it could not have happened to a more like willing subject. I think <laughs> I, I think someone maybe would have grappled with this as like sort of like a morality question. I think Raven is just like I am, you know, firing on all cylinders here, um, and I cannot wait to see what she does with this superpower. I think she was already respected and and recognized for her brilliance. I think this is just gonna sort of add to that that um recognition I do wonder how much of this was just the writers there's something in season four that they needed someone really smart and good at coding to figure out and they're like let's just have Allie have upgraded her brain oh yeah I think it's a shortcut but the 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 great thing with the hundred is is they don't they don't do them without it makes sense well no I was gonna say whatever they do if it is a shortcut you know there's consequences to everything Mm -hmm. you know you don't get anything for for nothing you know, there's always a price associated with it. So I, I think, you know, while it is amazing that, you know, she's sort of got like a superhuman computer brain, um, you know, there are going to be costs to that as well. And I think, again, like sort of straddling that line and, and grappling with that is really what's going to be interesting here. Yeah. I uh, I love that Jasper points out to Raven that, 
or, or acknowledges really that Raven has been in more pain than anybody and she's seen more pain than anyone. Um, and Raven kind of in true Raven fas- fashion is, you know, nothing like a little pain to remind me that I'm alive um, because I'm sure she has a lot of pain right now coming just back out of the city of light and kind of knowing the things that she's done. I guess she wasn't just out of the city of life, but you, you know, a few days. Yeah. And I mean, I think like the, her, her leg and her disability is a constant reminder. Yeah. Um, Jasper steals the gun on the table and kind of leaves the room uh, to, you know, do who knows what at this point. And Monty and Harper co op to quote unquote raid the kitchens. You know, it's like, is that what the kids are calling it these days? Yeah, we know what that means. <laughs> Uh, and we do, like we just said, we see Raven kind of trying to hide the pain from her leg. It's like very much appearing to be back in full force. Um, and I think this is a great thing to show as continuing even as far as, you know, three seasons after she uh, or Murphy shot her in, in season two. Yeah, two I think, seasons. again, what this show does is was so good at is their continuity. I think a lot of shows would have been like, well, it's been three seasons. Like, we've done our due diligence here. It's really annoying to, like you know, build in, you know, a, a character with limited mobility. It's hard on the actress who has a lot of physical, you know, discomfort when she's acting this out. And I think it would have been acceptable in another show to sort of like allow her to to heal at this point. But they're not interested in that. You know, this is going to be a disability and this is something she's going to have to live with for the rest of her life. And they're not going to, um, you know fix it quote unquote um just for the sake of efficiency and Lindsay morgan is so dedicated to portraying this as authentically as possible and she's done so much research and she like she doesn't half-ass it at all she like puts her entire body into playing this character um who has chronic pain from an old injury and it's to the fact that that Lindsay morgan now has uh, actual problems with her own leg just from kind of limping around and, and putting kind of different weight on it yeah I mean, her dedication is is really remarkable, and I think it pays off because it's it's a really moving addition to her character. It absolutely pays off. She's an amazing actress. Yeah. Uh, we see Monty and Harper having sex. Harpy sex is that is that their uh, their name? Harpy. Well, we'll call it that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Harper kind of wants to assure or reassure Monty that she doesn't expect anything from this. Their their two apparent times having sex at this point. But Monty does expect something. He actually wants them to be a couple. And Harper looks so relieved at this point. We have a lot of headcanon about Harper. Um, In season one, Jasper called her low-hanging fruit. And just kind of how that has developed her character in our minds, um, I definitely see her as having really low self-esteem about her sexuality. I'm not sure why. I'm curious to kind of know more about the, the relationship she's had with, you know, men in general her family, uh, romantic boys, um, and how that has kind of affected the person that she's grown into because she's not self-conscious in other situations, but this, like this, this sexual moment feels very much like Harper doesn't, she wants to like back away before Monty thinks that she's getting too close. Right. I think she's, she's been hurt before. I think she, she doesn't want to allow herself to be vulnerable again. She, she goes on the offense. She doesn't even allow him to deflect. She just immediately puts it out there that she's not expecting anything in a way so that she, she, you know, is guarding herself. And I think this speaks to, like you were saying, she's obviously self-conscious about her sexuality in a way that she's not self-conscious about other aspects of her life. And I think it really rounds out this character. I don't think that, you know, 
a human necessarily has to be self-conscious about everything. Absolutely. You know, you can have confidence in yourself in a lot of ways and you can be self-conscious about other things. And I think giving her this sort of self-esteem, you know, that's low and tied to her sexuality makes her a much more interesting character. And also, I think it's important in a show that, for the most part, and, and, you know, kudos to them for doing this, portrays women who are sexually active and not ashamed of it and are very comfortable with their sexuality in multiple different ways. I do think it's important to represent that, that not everyone is, mm-hmm. that it's, it's human sometimes not to be. And, you know, you need to represent the full spectrum. And I think Harper really sort of fills that gap. Yeah. And I, I will say, I do think they're really cute. I'm still trying to get on board the train. I'm like half on board the train, but I'm still half on board the other Menti train. I've got to let it go, I know. But Miller and Monty could have been so good together. I still Not ha- that I don't like Brian. I still have a headcanon that they'll get together, that they'll be endgame. We'll see. It was it was one of those surprises in season three that I think I shipped them so hard that I, I didn't even realize that it wasn't actually real That it yet. wasn't confirmed that Monty liked men. And he still could. He could be bisexual. Um, but I guess I just, I just like, assumed that they would get together. Yeah, we, I think we took it for granted. I think we just assumed that this was going to happen. And when it didn't happen, we were like, oh, we never actually got confirmation. We have to reorient our brains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were very much already on board with that ship. And then, of course, Raven with her impeccable timing coming in. Guys, we're all going to die. <laughs> what else is new? <laughs> Um, we switch to a very disturbing scene with Jasper where he has planned out every detail of his suicide from the music he's listening to, um, on Maya's headset to the painting, Maya's favorite painting to the plastic that he's laid down, um, to the letter that he wrote Monty and Monty knocks just in time before, like I was, I mean, I didn't really think he was going to die this episode, but it was a very close, it was a very close call. And I do hate... I don't think Monty and Jasper's relationship will ever be the same, which destroys me because they were so sweet and innocent together in in season one. Yeah, they've just gone on very different paths and they've hurt other people. They've hurt each other. They've hurt themselves. Um, You can't you can't put it back into the into the um, can. And I think that as like you were saying, I didn't think he was going to die this episode, but I'm really glad that they put the scene in here because mm-hmm. I'm the, it was an option for the the season finale of season three that they were thinking about having Jasper kill himself. Or really, I think they were actually going to. They were to. going to, and they decided not to given current events and reactions to the show, which I, I do agree was the right choice mm-hmm. ultimately. I think that would have been too heavy. Um, but I, I'm glad they didn't just like ultimately go in a completely different direction with his character. I'm glad that they committed to that decision um, and and his, his sort of like mental state at this point and they showed it and they demonstrated exactly where he is. I think it's important to show that he, how low he is right now. Right. He is starting at the bottom. Right. Um, we, in the next scene, see Raven telling everyone else about the apparent second Fukushima disaster, where they rebuild all nuclear power plants with this fail-safe system to make them self-sustaining for a hundred years. Um, but apparently all of their warranties ran out at once. Uh, space science. (laughs) Yeah, just go with it. Um, according to Raven's calculations, they only have six months before it kills them. So that basically lines up with what Allie told Clark. Um, and Jasper looks like he's been given a gift. Like, he doesn't have to kill himself now. Jasper's just going to wait for it to kill him. He's going to go off and watch the sunrise and enjoy what's left of his life. 
Um, where do you see Jasper going this season? What do you want from him? Because I guess I personally don't want him to actually end up committing suicide. I think it would have made sense at the end of last season, but I don't want to see him basically not go anywhere this season. Right, exactly. It's about it's about positioning. If 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 they had finished the last season after this huge de- descent and then ultimately it had had ended with his suicide, that would have felt earned and that would have felt um you know, like it had progressed. There had been a progression. It would have been a descending progression, but nevertheless, it would have been earned. Mm-hmm. Um I think if we start out with him at this low point, the only directions they can go are up and then maybe back down again. Um, but even so, they need to end it in a place that is different, ultimately different. I think that there's been a lot of speculation and rumor about whether he's coming back for season five. If he does ultimately die this season, which is likely, I think, um, I think he's going to need to go out in sort of like a a martyr kind of situation almost where he's dying, but it's it's worth something. Yeah, I, I don't think he's going to reach... I, I do think he's going to die this season. I don't think he's going to reach a point where he, you know, wants to live. I don't think he is going to get that far. But I do hope that his death, like, when he decides to die, or I guess I'm hoping if he dies, he's the one deciding to, you know, put himself out there in, in whatever situation that may be and, and save people that he loves. Yeah, I hope it's it, it's a conscious choice to save people and sacrifice himself instead of just ending his life. I wouldn't hate it if he did come to, you know, wants to live and then ends up dying for some other reason. Um, but I just don't see him moving that far this season. I don't either. Um. And then last, of course, we get this amazing scene in the desert of Egypt, I'm guessing, where there are huge pyramids in the distance. Um, The grounders are dying. One grounder is already dead. One grounder's not looking too good. She kind of comes up over the sand dune and sees this huge wall of fire coming at her, um, and it burns her alive. So this is the first time we've seen people outside of our own little you know, polis area. We've seen, um, we're now seeing that there are still people alive in other places in the world. Yeah, it begs the question, like, how, how big is the population on Earth? We don't know. And and also the question, how big is the population going to be after this nuclear disaster? Is it going to kill basically everyone else? Are the people who know about it in other places? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, again, um, there might be there might be populations, you know, like the mountain men where they were aware of the oncoming apocalypse and they built bunkers, but they were pretty technologically advanced. They may have tools and ways of monitoring the situation and preparing for the situation. I don't think that does us a lot of good, you know, us being the cast of the hundred, but um, it'll be, it would be interesting to know, like, are there pockets of people who are prepared and ready for this sort of second apocalypse? Yeah, it's really highlighting the scope of the problem here, that it's not just Clark and, you know, her people and the grounders, it's the entire world. Yeah, so, and the and the a question of, like, saving the human race again. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think they're going to? Do you think that, do you think that Clark is going to find a way to at least save the grounders and her people, or at least a good chunk of them? Yeah, I, I would say there's absolutely going to be casualties. This is the 100. I don't think everyone's coming out of the end of this season alive. I do think that, you know, regardless of the casualties, they're going to have to 
to, you know, have that she, they're ultimately going to find a way of surviving. I think they're going to figure something out. Well, let's be real. I think Clark and Bellamy and some of the delinquents, some are going to find their way to survive. Absolutely. We'll see about everybody else. <laughs> yes, of course. I, I don't think they can kill everybody because then we wouldn't have much of a season. So right. for next season. Um, so yeah, that is the episode. I did want to talk about the meaning behind the episode title Echoes though, because I feel like this has a ton of significance um, in many different ways for this episode. Definitely. Um, I mean, just the, the title alone is there's a titular character here that doesn't happen often on The 100. Um, and the hundred titles are always really meaningful and then packed full of, of different layers of significance. They're always really fun to parse out. But I think this one in particular, because it's sort of pointed like a giant green blinking arrow at Echo, it is a really good place to start here because she is so interesting. She is such a multifaceted character. Again, this show is not interested in black and white, only shades of gray. And I think that giving her these sort of textured layers to her character this episode really sets her up for a really interesting progression this season um and sort of highlighting that and spotlighting her um prominence going forward I completely agree um I also think that this highlights some different relationship and plot echoes from earlier seasons everything from you know Kane and Murphy or or Kane and Bellamy uh Murphy and Bellamy Clark and Bellamy Murphy and (laughs) Bellamy um Clark and Lexa and then kind of into that uh echoes of dead people of of ghosts of the past you know Lexa the grounders who are dead uh from the city of light even Lincoln yes I mean I think if you think of like what an echo is it's it's like you know resounding sound in like a cavernous space it's the absence of 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 figures it's the absence of body of, of space and you know, it's empty space and I think when you think about this and like the absence of all of those who have fallen you know it's a really interesting idea of like they're all sort of like bouncing off of one another but nothing's coming back to them because this, the bodies that would have you know you know reciprocated Lexa Lincoln so on and so on they're not there anymore and so you have this sort of like cavernous emptiness mm-hmm. and I think it really highlights the difference in tone that we're seeing this season. Um, it's its very much a return to the feeling of season one, I think. And they've been telling us that over and over again in all the promotional materials. But this episode, I, I actually feel it. I, I wasn't sure if I would, but I do. Oh, absolutely. There, There is a tonal shift, a seismic shift in tone, if you will, um, from season three to season four. I think season three was, was heavy. It was dark. And it just sort of was like beating a horse already on the ground. And this is sort of like a coming back to basics and really celebrating the delinquents and all of their quirkiness and how they work with one another and sort of like the spaces in between them and how those different dynamics operate. And I think that's where this show excels the most is in these relationships with the delinquents in particular. And it's going to be so much fun seeing them back together. Yeah. I mean, even though the world is ending – I'm at least glad that the delinquents are, you know, going to be, if not a united front, at least on the same front. <laughs> yeah. And I also think, too, there's just like, speaking of tone, I mean, there's, you know, given the like gravity of the situation, the un- incoming doom, <laughs> there is a lot of optimism here, you yeah. know, uh, of hopefulness, of, re- of resilience and um, determination. They're not willing to give up. And I think that that is sort of 
a much more positive lightness that we haven't seen in a while. Yeah. Even though we're facing like the most monstrous of all villains, which is nature um, and science. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Do you uh, want to move into the favorite scenes? Yeah. So what is yours? My favorite scene um, was in the cell when Clark was confessing to Abby about Lexa and just sort of seeing everybody's reaction to that confession that wasn't a confession because we already knew that um, and sort of seeing the, the absence of reaction um, to the to the content but not to the the weightiness of it. You can see that, that Octavia isn't ready to even come close to processing her own grief about the person she lost. She can't even look at this in the face. You can sort of see Bellamy sort of confronting his own emotions about what he actually feels for Clark and I, I don't think maybe they're a little bit clearer to him now than they were a season ago but I don't think he's actually 100% sure of what his feelings are there it's a very cloudy thing I think Kane you know more than ever respects the two of them and how they operate together and I don't think he wants to see Clark in any pain at all and the fact that she suffered so much is hard for him and then Abby as her mom you know trying to be the emotional support that Clark needs in this moment is so beautiful and I, I think the way that they filmed this scene sort of panning around in this like circular motion was was just wonderful that was an amazing scene and also one of my favorites but my actual favorite is the scene between Kane and Bellamy where he tells him that you have to turn the page and move on and I mean we talked about that earlier but I think it had really beautiful significance for their relationship um and, and on a personal level it's really important that Bellamy is able to move forward as a leader definitely I mean this is sort of like Kane giving him not a pass but just sort of like a guidance like you know you can't take it back so now you just have to keep going and also you know you need to be able to forgive yourself yeah I mean as as Bellamy says forgiveness is hard for him yeah Uh, I don't know when if ever he'll ever be able to forgive himself but maybe not but I think it's important for someone else to tell him that it would be okay if he did he needs to learn from it and and keep going yeah uh favorite line oh my favorite line was when Murphy told Jaha to go float yourself because that's exactly what I wanted to say to Jaha myself (laughs) it was like I was Murphy we were one in the same if you guys can't tell Jaha is her favorite character he's not my favorite character (laughs) I hate him (laughs) Kane <laughs> is a strong word. I dislike him <laughs> a lot. Strenuously dislike him. Um, I think my favorite line was "Thank you for keeping me alive," which Clark says to Bellamy. It was just so nice to see that acknowledged out loud, um, and to see his like facial expression, and just knowing that he is appreciated. You're appreciated, Bellamy. Yep. Uh, so a couple season predictions. Who do you think is going to die, or is anyone going to die? I think the only person that at this moment I am. I feel confident claiming is Jasper. Yeah. Um, I feel pretty confident that he's not going to make it. You know, he's made it four seasons past his expiration date. I feel like at any any time now that they want to say goodbye to his character, they will do it earnestly and give him like the proper send off that he deserves. I don't think he's going to make it, though. I, I completely agree. I also want to add, I, I, I hope it's not true. But I think Roan could possibly die this season. I was thinking that too. I don't want it to happen. We'll I see. just, I have like a spidey sense. Yeah. I mean, he's like almost too cool to be on the show. Yeah. And he, he, um, again, he's, he's not a pacifist, but he is a problem solver. Mm-hmm. And like this show strives with conflict. And if you have a, too many people who are solving problems, you don't have a show. Um, 
And I think they're setting up already the unrest that Asgata is going to have with him as a leader. Yeah. Because he's not making the decisions that they are used to. Right. And also, you know, with the, as like a key player that he is with the other key players on his level, namely Clark Bellamy, <laughs> like he's the most expendable of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who are you most interested in seeing in terms of character arcs this season? Um, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, I'm interested in the Blakes, the, <laughs> you know, together and apart. Yeah. Um, I think Octavia again is in a really dark place. I think she's honestly, she's the most traumatized of the original hundred. And I don't think we've ever really dealt with what that means for her psychologically. And I think it's clear now that she's never been given like the proper tools to, to be a, a mature adult woman. Um, and she's clearly not ready to to really be like a functioning person at this moment. I don't think she is a person. I think she's a robot with a knife. Um, <laughs> and I think watching her progression, whether it be up or down, is going to be really, really interesting in a way we've never seen her sort of grow mm-hmm. before. Um, and for Bellamy, too, I mean, he's, again, in a really tough place emotionally. He is still dealing with the guilt of that massacre, as he should, um, and doing his penance, but again, he he has a job to do and lead his people, and he needs to get over it. And so, I'm really interested in how they sort of balance those two two weights. I think um, Bellamy is going to be seen as kind of a front runner leader in this season, alongside Clark, in a way that he hasn't been before. I think Clark recognized that in him, but other people didn't necessarily, at least to the extent that Clark is recognized as a leader. But I think that he's definitely going to become more of an equal partner in this relationship in the eyes of everyone else. I agree. I think, you know, we already see him sort of taking up the mantle and sharing it with her. Whereas before he was always like sort of behind her in the shadows, he's going to be equally sharing the limelight and the responsibility of those decisions with her. Which is perfect because they make each other better leaders. They do. Um, and I think I have to add to that. I'm really excited to see where Raven goes this season. I think she's going to have an incredible arc um, just with, you know, the fact that she has been upgraded by Allie. Um, but not just that. I also think that she's going to have to deal with the issues of leadership in a way that she hasn't had to do in other seasons. Mm-hmm. I think she might have to start making some morally ambiguous choices as well. And I'm really interested to see how they place her in terms of Clark Bellamy and, and, and now Raven and the kinds of decisions they make. Yeah, no, I think, what is it? Braven Clark? Braven, Braven, Braven Arc? Braven Lark? It's Braven Arc. Braven Arc. Braven Arc is like my favorite OT3. <laughs> Um, they're definitely strong. They're strongest when they're together and working together. I think in a way that Bellamy and Clark have never really judged each other, Raven gets a little judgy. She's a little preachy sometimes. For good reason. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's definitely the smartest, um, but I, I think she's never had to like bear the burden of that decision-making mm-hmm. leadership position, and she throws a lot of shade. Yeah, she's the one who comes in and, like, solves whatever problem they're working on, but she's not the one who... She just never pulls the, the lever. She never pulls the lever. That is an excellent way to describe yeah. it. Yeah, and um, I think she's she's definitely stepping up into a leadership role here, and she's going to have to pull some levers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next episode, next week's episode, is Heavy Lies the Crown, which not going to get into now, but I'm interested that it is a wrong Shakespeare quote. Um, a drunk Shakespeare. A drunk Shakespeare quote. The The real one is, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Um, and they're slightly different, and I think that's going to have some sort of meaning in, in episode two, but we will talk about that next week. Mm-hmm. 
So to sign off, um, I want you to know that you can get in contact with us at Sky Crew or skycastcrew at gmail.com. And that is S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can tweet us at Skycast. You can find us on Tumblr at skycast.tumblr.com. And you can also tweet us at our own Twitter accounts. So I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. And I'm at B. Perlman89. Uh, so one last time, I'm Sarah. And I'm Brittany. Uh, thanks for joining us on SkyCast, guys. Hope to see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.